Hello, party people, and welcome to You Scared of This. We are a weekly podcast where two grown men watch every episode of Nickelodeon's classic horror anthology series from the 90s, Are You Afraid of the Dark? And what do we do after that? Well, we try to determine whether or not it's still scary. I'm one of your hosts, Eli Phillips, and with me as always is my best friend, David Dykus. Dykus, how you doing? Uh, doing pretty well, Eli. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm actually excited. I'm, I'm feeling good today. Looking forward to talking about The Tale of Oblivion. Yeah, what a badass title. I know, right? This is... I look forward to including it in our list of top episode titles. <laughs> which which really didn't become a thing until this season, right? Like, we really started nitpicking... I guess last season, when we had Vacant Lot, we started nitpicking a bit. But uh... I think the tale of C7 is what made us consider that there <laughs> that some episode titles were better and worse than others. The tale of C7, neither an episode about bingo or battleship. What a mistake. What missed opportunity. Yeah, for real. But before we get into the tale of oblivion, uh, should we knock out some Nick news? Well, Eli, what kind of Nick news do you have for us this week? Good news. Not a lot. This week, the only thing we have to talk about is the fact that about three hours ago, uh, the Vans Shoe and Clothing Company and Nickelodeon announced they are teaming up for a pair of SpongeBob SquarePants-themed shoes. All right, well, good Nick news. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> no, seriously, like, why are they releasing? This seems like such a not-timely thing on the part of both SpongeBob and Vans. I'm going to suggest that it is for the sake of nostalgia. What a like, petty reason to do something. Kids in high school who were little and watched SpongeBob with their older brothers and sisters are now old enough to ironically wear SpongeBob SquarePants shoes for nostalgia. There are kids in high school now who were born after SpongeBob started airing. That is scary. Yeah. I guess there are probably college students now who are old enough that they were born after SpongeBob started airing. That's really weird. What's What's crazy is that I don't think there's been a period in SpongeBob's existence where there wouldn't be kids ironically wearing SpongeBob shoes in high school. You're right. I mean, I remember that from... I remember having ironic SpongeBob shirts when you and I were in high school. Really? You did? I didn't think you wore I, anything with merchandise or characters on it. This was this was just before I, I swore off uh, branded shirts. I had a couple SpongeBob shirts, yeah. I only wore them a handful of times. Amazing. Wow. Um, I'm not proud of it. <laughs> yeah, for, for our listeners who don't know, David Dykus does not wear any clothing with any words on it. I made that decision when I was about... I would say 16 or 17. This would have been in 2003, 2004, which was a terrible time for, like, brand logo clothing. There was a time when I wore the the usual Hollister, Aeropostale, American Eagle bullshit that was popular at the time, but eventually I grew so disgusted with it that I swore it off. Which is good, because a lot of those shirts were weirdly racist. Yep, weirdly racist, weirdly sexist, just kind of baffling and (laughs) inexplicable. Mm Mm-hmm, and lazy. Again, a bad time for fashion. But yeah, uh, what were we talking about? SpongeBob. <laughs> what would you do? Would you wear a pair of SpongeBob Vans if I bought them for you? No. Nope. No brands. Your birthday's like, it's, coming it's up. It's all I can do to wear the Nike swoosh on my uh, solid black shoes. That, that, so, did, that did make me think about something I have been wanting to get for you, and now I'm rethinking it. But anyway, um, let's move on to the tale. Let's move on to the tale of Oblivion. Yes, let's get right down to business this week with The Tale of Oblivion, which is going to be the 75th episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Happy 75, Are You Afraid of the Dark? The the crystal anniversary, or whatever it is. Uh, this episode the SpongeBob was shoe by, anniversary. 
the SpongeBob shoe anniversary. It's, it's the, the sponge important. anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> so what? When you've been married seventy five years to get your uh, your old old spouse a ring with a big piece of sponge on it? Yeah, or you get him like an ironic SpongeBob SquarePants T shirt, or like uh, a you know a seventy six years jersey. <laughs> I forgot about that. Good, good callback. So to all of our very old listeners who are about to hit that big seventy five. Happy Sponge. Happy happy Sponge. This episode (laughs) was directed by Jim Donovan, uh, his first of a few directorial credits here, and was written by James Morris, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this is the only episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark that he ever wrote. Now, do you think that's because, like, James Morris wrote this episode, they produced it, and then afterwards said, Mmm, never again. Or do you think he was the one? Like, who who made the decision that this would be James Morris's only episode? Well, not to get ahead of ourselves here, but, like, judging by the quality of this episode, I wouldn't have minded a few more James Morris joints. Yeah. And, of course, we're joking about this, but you, we've talked to DJ McHale about how every episode went through him. So you would have television writers pitching episodes, and he would essentially take their pitch and then rewrite it to sort of fit the brand a little bit more. I, I don't know how much influence he had over absolutely every episode, but it's very possible that this is just a guy who was pitching episodes to all kinds of TV shows, and this was the one pitch he wrote that, that DJ liked, so who knows. So this episode was first aired April 17th, 1999, and as we will find out almost immediately upon diving in, this is a Tucker story. Yep, we joined the Midnight Society, gathered round the fire, playing with a bunch of uh, antiquated technology. Yeah, Tucker uh, has brought in... He's brought in, like, old toys and old tech and all sorts of old stuff. Uh, some stilts, some cassette tapes, some 8-track tapes. Uh, he says phone. he got it from his parents' basement, so I was expecting a bit more magical stuff here. But no, it's just, like, old rotary phones and record players and, as you pointed out, a pair of stilts that Andy foolishly tries to use. Listen, you say foolishly, but I'm going to give Andy some credit here. Uh, Andy walks around the campfire on stilts for like several steps before falling over and you know busting his ass i don't think in I, I couldn't walk on stilts on flat smooth ground and he's in the woods on stilts well I mean, oh, let's not give him too much credit these are very short stilts and he only takes about three steps before he face plants listen i couldn't do it props to andy where did you find stilts i've never walked on stilts i went some stilts oh my grandpa made me some stilts when i was a kid oh that's so cool we we had a weird family like that where they would just like make things partially because my my grandpa was from like the circus depression era south where you had to be resourceful and my dad is an engineer so when I was a kid like anything that we wanted or needed there was someone thinking I bet I could make that and so we had our own stilts and a treehouse my dad made nunchucks for my brother and I and we just beat the shit out of each other it was great <laughs> what kind of crazy Batman esque training did you go through as a kid where you're 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 beating up your siblings with nunchucks and learning to walk on stilts you joke about that but my father he he did like. When he was in college, he was a martial arts instructor. So when I was six years old, like, we were in the backyard with our dad, standing my brother and I shoulder to shoulder with him in front of us as he taught us to, like, flip nunchucks around and shit. I'm just imagining, like, your uh, rite of passage, coming of age ritual when you were, like, 16, where you're having to do, you and your brother are having to, like, battle each other on stilts with nunchucks. Yeah, he dropped us off in the woods. We each had a pair of stilts strapped to our feet and a pair of nunchucks. And he said he would only pick up one of us at daybreak. (laughs) The tale of the nunchuck stilts. (laughs) The stilts were also tied together with a chain. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, that sounds so much more about? interesting than this episode now. <laughs> so, so anyway, Tucker is Andy... talking about all this old technology that he found at his parents' place, and he he muses to himself, where does all this old technology go when it becomes obsolete? It has to go somewhere. Which this uh, is a funny comment for him to make because he's answered the question, right? He got it from a basement. Yeah. <laughs> he also points out that, like, what ha- what happened to all these things that used to be popular? You know, like vinyl records. <laughs> Which is hilarious walk, walk. because I went in, I think, Urban Outfitters the other day to buy my girlfriend about 50 bucks worth of records. Oh, yeah. I think... I think that's their main source of revenue now. We buy at least one or two vinyl a year. So who knows? Maybe all this other old crap will come back, ironically. I, I quietly look to the my stilts that are, like, in the back of the closet. I'm like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't own Someday. stilts. Uh, so he uses this to sort of uh, dovetail into his story. And I want to talk about this. There are a couple of things here that I, I want to point out sort of metatextually about the, the episode. Uh, Metasexually? Yeah, <laughs> what what would that even be? Uh, I want to talk about a couple of things relating to... Hey, look, uh, we just call it jacking off, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about a couple of things sort of outside of the story, but about the structure of this episode. <laughs> what has happened to us? I was, I was unjustly proud of myself for that joke. Go on. <laughs> you should be ashamed. Um, one... This is, I think, the second episode in a row and one of several episodes this season where we've just jumped right in as the Midnight Society is already around the fire and doing what they're going to do. Um, In the old episodes, we were used to seeing everyone arrive at the fire or at least one person arrive at the fire. We were used to seeing the meeting start. It's really interesting to me that in season six, definitely more than any other season and maybe almost exclusively, we see the Midnight Society, like, already in action when we get there. I am perfectly all right with that. I'm glad we moved away from the format of, where's so-and-so? They're late. Tonight's their night to tell the story. Where are they? Yeah. We, get well, st- another- we still get some of that, but, like, I'm perfectly content to drop in while they're, you know, in media res. Something that it made me think about is it gives the illusion to me that there is stuff happening around this campfire beyond what we see. Like, the implication that they were already there and they already had these things out and we don't get to know all of it, it, it's a very subtle thing, but it made me realize that it makes me feel as though they were hanging out for quite a while or they are doing stuff together that we don't see, as opposed to the old group where we saw them come together and, you know, they they were coming from disparate places. This group, when I, when I see them, when the episode starts, they're already hanging out together. And that's kind of a weird, interesting difference that I've picked up on. The other thing, really quickly, that I want to point out is this is another time where someone has given an opening monologue that is at least in some way actually related to the episode. Um, We've had so many episodes in the past, and we've complained about it and made fun of it, where the connection between the opening or the inspiration and the actual stuff happening in the story is tenuous at best. Um, Mm -hmm. This season has done, I think, maybe a better job of tightening those connections, which is something that I also really genuinely appreciate. I sort of question how connected this is to the story itself. It'll tie in at the end, but yeah, Tucker uses this to kick off the tale of oblivion. And in a callback to the joke I made last week, when we start the story, I thought for a second we were in the Elder Scrolls for oblivion because the first thing we see are two medieval monks running away from a giant barbarian warrior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're running away from your player character. 
Yes. Uh, they're being chased by a monstrous Viking dude named Kronos the Conqueror. And I gotta say, I was a little disappointed that Kronos is just this big Viking man. Kronos sounds like the name of, like, a time-traveling supervillain, which I guess he kind of is, in a way, by the end of the episode, but mainly he's just this big, ugly man who yells a lot. We must protect the tools! So Cronus has chased these two monks into a monastery. They bar the door, and as Cronus is breaking it down, one of the monks scrawls Cronus' name on a sheet of paper using a piece of charcoal, and then manages to erase it as soon as Cronus breaks down the door and is about to perform fatalities on them. Uh, <laughs> as, as soon as the name is erased, Cronus vanishes into thin air, and the older monk tells the younger monk to hide the tools of oblivion in the new world. I really loved this scene for a few reasons really quickly. Uh, I thought the set was really great. I thought yeah. the monks looked like cartoons. Like if you imagine a monk, if Bugs Bunny were to run into a monk and torture him and you're like, you know, it's Elmer Fudd as a monk for some reason. These guys look exactly like that. They are the most cartoon stereotypical monks. It's impressive that, I mean, you mentioned the set. It does look really good. It's kind of crazy to think that they built this entire set just for this like one two minute sequence on a on an anthology show for Nickelodeon. Yeah, like, where did they get this? How did they get away with it? It looks legit. Uh, there's a stained glass window in it that they actually pan up to that looks very, very nice. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out is this scene was much funnier to me than it should have been because the younger monk looks just like Buster Bluth from Arrested Development. <laughs> I had not noticed. I, thor- I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, and he's like, he's younger, so I actually was like, is it the same actor? But uh, it's not. Uh, yeah, he, the old monk says, hide these in the new world. And then they both kind of like look up and to the right as the camera pans up. And I imagined that it was going to pan up to an American flag (laughs) 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 because of the way, like he says the new world and it looks like like they're both modern American flag with 50, (laughs) 50 stars. Yeah, exactly. It looks like they're going, like they are looking at the symbol of the new world. Like it looks like the reason they turn their gaze upward is because he said those words. But no, it just pans to a very, very nice looking stained glass window. And then we fade to... Were you uh, imagining like my... a stained glass version of the American flag? <laughs> yeah, and there's like a flute, like a little playing uh, Yankee Doodle. <laughs> so then we get this great opening sequence and then we fast forward. It's the year, it's the futuristic year of 1999. Uh, America's doing great. We were all pretty happy. Music and fashion, like we said, are in kind of a terrible place, but that's okay. And this is where we meet our two young protagonists, a pair of twins named Max and Shelley. And we do need to note that in this opening scene, we see Max asleep in his bedroom. His mom comes in to wake him up. Mac, Mac, Max makes a sarcastic remark. And then most importantly, we get a shot of possibly the greatest art ever featured in Are You Afraid of the Dark? Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Max has in his room, framed above, or not framed, but hanging above his bed, a poster, and this poster is entire like the, the the art area is entirely filled with the face of a like gray long hair cat wearing a <laughs> monocle. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful! Why he has a... this? It's never like this is the only shot we get of this painting, but it's it's gorgeous. I'm screenshotting it right now. Don't let me forget to post it. Oh, it's gonna be the the header image on our Facebook page if you want to see it. I will be talking about a few pieces of art in this episode, but anyway, let's rush through the the sort of opening parts of this episode, because they're not important. Max 
is rude to his family. He's rude to his twin sister, Shelly, who we meet downstairs at the breakfast table. Shelly is being responsible and good to their mother. Max is being a dick. And then the two of them are sent off to walk to school. While they're on the way to school, we learn that the problem Max has is that he is really annoyed by the fact that he's a twin. Apparently, he's had this chip on his shoulder for 10 years or 12 years and is still talking about it. Um, he doesn't like... Yeah, he calls Shelly. his sister a barnacle. He's like, you cling to me. We have the same friends. We have to eat breakfast together. We're in all the same classes. Like, you live in my home. <laughs> we share a last name. I hate being your twin. You, you get the privilege of looking at my awesome cat picture every day. <laughs> Uh, and uh, this is obviously a stupid bit of tension between the two of them. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, like, you could have had this entire episode without it, I feel. But that is his opening conflict. The important thing is that as they're having this argument and as they're walking to school, he remembers that he accidentally lost his art supplies and he needs to get some more. So it's time to go to the first shop he can find because maybe they'll have art supplies. Yeah, they walk to school in like a foot of snow. We, we gloss over. They're also, like, they encounter a big Rottweiler that runs out and doesn't like Max. But, yeah, they stroll into town and decide to search for art supplies at the first shop they see, which just so happens to be the Magic Mansion. Which looks way nicer than it has in any previous episode. Like, the storefront here is, it seems like Sardo is moving up. It really does. It's a much nicer facade. Uh, they go in, and we and Max and Shelley meet Sardo, who does all of his usual lines. It's great. Yeah, um, the most important thing here, aside from the actual like plot mechanism that he gives them, is, of course, the fact that he references uh, previous cameo appearances he's made. What can I help you with? I know. Perhaps a talisman from the Far East. Or a doorway that can show the future. You can find the most interesting items in my shop. All you need do is ask. I don't know if we talked about this. As we're reviewing season six, I'm rewatching uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. I can't remember if we had this discussion on mic or off or not. Uh, but if we ever recast Are You Afraid of the Dark, we can both agree that Titus from Kimmy Schmidt was born to play the role of Sardo, right? But those papers have numbers on them, Rick. Numbers. The most boring of all the shapes. I mean, in Sardo's earliest appearances, we compared him to Jack Black because he was kind of like skeezy and forgetful and goofy. And Jack Black basically plays that exact same character in School of Rock. But the more like the further we go into the Sardo character and the more sort of a parody of himself he becomes. Yeah, I yeah. think that Titus would be an excellent uh, Sardo. He's very melodramatic in his delivery here, like more even by Sardo standards. I made the exact same note, yeah. I, I laughed really hard. Uh, Sardo was trying to pawn all sorts of crap off on them. I have the perfect, the perfect gift for school, school people, an abacus. This was once used by someone a long, long time ago to measure the speed of heat. But Max has no use for this stuff. He tells Sardo he's just looking for art supplies, digs through the shelves, and finds, of course, the tools of oblivion. Uh, Sardo spins a bullshit yarn about their origins because he has no idea where they came from. He knows they're from England, but he doesn't know anything else about them. And Max acquires this great and terrible power for a mere $10 after talking Sardo down from 30 Yeah, but Sardo's losing on the deal, of course. Of course. Uh, we cut to art class at school later that day. Max uses the charcoal he just bought 
uh, to work on a still life, but when he erases a mistake that he made, he discovers that he has erased the actual fruit that he's drawing. Yeah, he was drawing an apple, and then he erases it, and someone says, hey, where'd the apple go? And someone says, hey, where'd the pear go? And everyone's like, who's eating all of our fruit? Uh, <laughs> and this also marks the first time in the episode we get a specific musical cue. Every single time Max uses the charcoal and the eraser, we get this, like, musical stab of a little, of like a short Gregorian chant. Which, if you're watching this episode, you will either grow to love it or absolutely hate it by the end of the show. It sticks out like a sore thumb. I will uh, say I really enjoyed this scene. Um, I The way that he erases the apple and then they discover that the apple has gone missing is wonderful because there's no CGI used. It's done entirely with practical effects. Like, there's an apple there. We cut to Max. We hear someone angrily say, where's the apple? We cut back and it's gone. Um, it's so simple and it's so basic, but it's directed so well as to actually still have a level of, like, mystery and discovery to it. Like, if you hadn't seen the stuff with Kronos at the beginning, and you didn't know that this power was in, inside of these tools, um, that moment is really great. And you see a flash in Max's eyes when he starts to put together what he's doing. And I actually thought it was all really, really well done. Um, the one thing I will say is that Max puts it all together so fucking quickly as to be unbelievable. He's like, oh... I'm doing this. Oh, I can do more of this. Like, within three seconds, he goes from not knowing he has magic powers to manipulating them for his own amusement. He writes the words Shelley's pencil on his sheet of paper and then erases it, and his sister's pencil disappears. I feel like that I that did not bother me. I feel like this is a pretty easy thing to deduce once you start erasing, like... I'm just saying that this kid's grasp on reality is very tenuous when, like, two strange coincidences happen and he immediately says, oh, okay, I've definitely punctured the veil between the real world and the supernatural. Like, he does not freak out. He is not mystified. It happens and he just says, yeah, all right, now I have powers. So on the way home from school, Shelly is chiding him for this. We get a pretty funny scene where the Rottweiler chases Max up a tree and Shelly commands the dog to eat Max when he falls down. <laughs> It's very funny. It's not unjustified on her part because he has been a dick to her the whole time. Every time they see this Rottweiler, she makes some comment about the Rottweiler eating Max. She says, uh, don't bite him, you might get sick. And then she says, if he ever climbs down from that tree, eat him. So she has this cartoonishly good relationship with this dog and her brother's is very bad. Uh, Max, I mean, if of all, course, it only could on. have been made better if she'd said, if she'd commanded the dog to bite him in the wiener. But Right. <laughs> if the Rottweiler's name just happened to be Beethoven. Uh, Max Max rescues himself by erasing the Rottweiler. Yep, just in the nick of time. Uh, Max is feeling extra dickish after this near-death experience. Uh, He goes home, and when the twins' asshole piano instructor arrives, and she's going to force them to only play scales. Yeah, they're just going to play scales for like an hour. (laughs) I love the musical cue here when she's practicing scales and then the background music does this little ascending do-do-do-do-do-do, like... waiting for you out there i enjoy it's like that it's taunting her <laughs> uh max erases the piano off camera with only the gregorian chant there to clue us in as to what has happened once again i really like how subtle i mean it's not subtle but like they could have gone way overboard with the effects here and they didn't <laughs> they just moved the piano off screen uh, I, I like that too 
his sister starts to put together what's happening. Shelly is getting on to him, and he reveals that he has magic art supplies. She doesn't believe him, and so we get definitely the weirdest moment in the episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Max decides to demonstrate this power to Shelly by erase by using the chalk to remove his sister's underwear, which is super creepy. Yeah, like, you are in a world with an infinite number of things in front of you, and to demonstrate your magic powers, you're going to make your sister's underwear disappear. It's. I don't think he realizes how weird that is. The director had to recognize it, right? Like, the writers had to. Did they think this was going to play funnier than it did? <clears throat> I don't know what they were expecting here. I think it's... I think they just assumed that anything with underpants equaled instant comedy. But instead, it's just it just makes Mac look really... It puts it casts him in an unflattering light, to say the least. Yeah. Uh, so when Shelley finally believes him and she realizes what he's done, uh, he reveals that he made the dog disappear. And we've kind of glossed over this, but that's a pretty fucked up thing, right? Like, maybe he killed this fucking dog. Yeah, he unmade a dog. Yeah. Uh, Shelley is having none of this and she's going to tell their mom. And he says, if you tell mom, I'm going to fucking erase you. And he writes her name on a sheet of paper. Max is now the villain of this episode. Yeah, as soon as she calls up their mom, he makes good on his promise, writes down her name, and erases her. And she vanishes into thin air in a pretty decent special effect. Max is ruthless. Yeah, he makes her Back to the Future vanish, starting with her hand. Like, she watches her hand disappear in horror, and then she's gone. Uh, He lies to their mom, and he's like, no, 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 everything's fine. And then he finally starts to feel remorse for what he's done, which leads us back to the Magic Mansion. Well, I think this is where we hit our commercial break. Yeah. Are you ready, kids? Aye, aye, Oh, who lives in a pineapple under the sea? SpongeBob SquarePants! Now, it's SpongeBob SquarePants! Hey, everybody! Nickelodeon's newest, spongiest, square-pantsiest Nicktoon! Pretty cool, huh? SpongeBob SquarePants! Only on the best place to turn for new tunes in your Nickelodeon! Oh, boy! Now's my chance! SpongeBob SquarePants is coming in July! Be there and be square! Look at me! I'm naked! So like you said, when we get back, uh, this is the part of the episode where the kid goes back and complains to Sardo, so Max does just that. Uh, Sardo does his usual, which is to say, refuse to give the person a refund. Max says, I don't want a refund, I want my sister back. And so Sardo, not really caring about any of this, pretends to have a solution. He looks in one of his big old dusty books and he says, Oh yeah, you have to find your sister by going where she went. And uh, Max is immediately like, Oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. Why didn't I think of that before? And he goes home to erase himself. I also like that Sardo has this conversation while casually feather dusting a human skull. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Max goes home and yeah, he erases himself. And he winds up in our favorite kind of place, a huge room full of junk. And this may well be the mother of all junk rooms in Are You Afraid of the Dark? This is like if you took the attic from Hungry Hounds and the bedroom from The Dream Machine and just dumped them into a very small space together. It's just full of of abandoned crap from all over, from like, I guess all throughout history. As he stumbles through this room full of junk, we hear like, voices calling out from the ether and, like, Morse code. It's a very weird atmosphere. Yeah. 
Max is stumbling through all of this looking for his sister, and he happens to stumble upon a person, but not the one he's looking for. We get a pretty neat little musical cue. Uh, someone's playing their their janky old piano, and it turns out to be Kronos the Conqueror. In a shot that I love, the camera pans through a bunch of cobwebs to reveal Kronos, and it's actually awesome. That's a really cool payoff to, like, Kronos disappearing and then the piano disappearing. I would not have expected those two things to tie into one another. But yeah, it's the reveal of Kronos is great. Uh, Kronos introduces himself, uh, limited to the fact that they are in Oblivion, where they are surrounded by almost nothing but junk. He tries to eat a plastic flamingo, and he's like, look at this, I can't even fucking eat it. We should point out, you've referred to him as a barbarian, but he is definitely Scottish. He's wearing a kilt and, like, a tartan, oh, yeah. and he has a, a very heavy Scottish accent. Um, yep, he's a very right. imposing-looking villain. He's... He's, uh, he reminds me of the Scotsman from Samurai Jack, but not bald. Yeah, you're right. He is, he is very Scottish. Kronos asks Max how he got here, and Max, like an idiot, just whips out the tools of oblivion and tells Kronos that he erased himself, and he still has the tools here. Kronos demands also, these Also, I just back- also want to ask the quick question. Kronos gestures toward this uh, pink flingo-like lawn ornament. There's a whole box full of them here. Who erased those? Someone? Who had the tools of oblivion and yep. erased a bunch of lawn flamingos? And why? It's even weirder when you think about the fact that Sardo states that he got these tools, he got them from England. So either Sardo has been erasing a lot of random shit, or someone in England had a crate of flamingos and thought the best way to dispose of them was magic. Rather than what you would normally do with a bunch of unwanted lawn ornaments, which is just leave them on a box at, like, the sidewalk. (laughs) Or, like, give them to a bunch of teens and have them stick them all in a person's yard. Yeah, the humane thing to do. Once Kronos realizes that Max has the tools of oblivion, a chase ensues. He's chasing him all through this mess of stuff, and Max hides inside of an old car. This is one of my favorite moments in the episode. I kept waiting for, for like, an homage to Jurassic Park, where it's... Fr- the shot is framed just like that, where he's sitting, breathing hard at, like, a car window. I wanted Kronos to, like, look through the window and his pupils dilate. <laughs> he he snorts and the window fogs up. Yeah. Uh, that, we get a that doesn't really good exactly e- happen. We get a really good effect here. Max is doing some quick thinking, so he writes a word on the paper and erases it, and in the seat next to him, Sardo materializes. Yeah, he pops out of thin air, brushing his teeth. When he realizes he's been teleported, he does a spit take and spews uh, toothpaste foam all over the window. We've had plenty of scream takes. Is this our first spit take in Are You Afraid of the Dark? I don't know. I I really wish I had the time to go back and watch everything again and check. Uh, Listeners, if you can think of a spit take, let us know. Yeah, please. (laughs) Uh, Sardo is pissed off that he's been teleported here. The two of them start arguing, and then Kronos finds them. Yeah, they run out of the car, they run through all of the junk, and they eventually find both Shelly and the dog trapped on a conveyor belt that is just dumping all of this junk into... Hell. There's a bright white light on the other side of, like, a a hole in the wall. Where does this go? Is this, like, take... Is this dumping the trash into Super Oblivion? (laughs) Right, like, what what comes after Oblivion? And don't say Skyrim. (laughs) (laughs) Rim shot. (laughs) <laughs> the point being that Shelly and the dog are about to be incinerated or vaporized or something. Yeah, and she's trapped She's trapped inside of a cartoonishly large birdcage. 
Kronos explains that everything in Oblivion eventually goes on that conveyor belt and gets dumped into nothingness. I don't know. Uh, and that that's about to happen to Shelley. He says that if Max will give him the tools of Oblivion, he will give Max the key and they can set her free. Why can't they all just, like, pull the cage off? I guess they try, but it's too heavy, maybe? I don't know if it's too heavy or if it's, like, glued to the conveyor belt. I, I honestly don't know. Uh, Max agrees and gives the tools of Oblivion to Kronos, and Kronos draws a door. It's a door that we saw at the very beginning of the episode. It got a very, uh, it got a serious, like, Stephen King's The Dark Tower vibe from this, that he just draws this freestanding door into existence and, like, travels to a different world. It's pretty rad. Kronos draws this door, throws it open, and he sees the monks again, you know, shitting themselves. So, like, this thing can, this thing can travel through time? Is the implication there that Kronos... He he draws the door and opens it, so are we to assume that, like, in the opening scene, in the prologue, when they make him vanish, does he just reappear a few seconds later? I think, yeah, it's supposed to be right then and there, because it's the same two monks. He says, even tells Max, I'm going back to my own time. Man, the rules here, I don't know what they are. Uh, he's about to run through when Max grabs the tools of oblivion. Did he grab them, or did he, like, break the chalk, or break the charcoal and save a bit for himself? Oh, I don't know, maybe that's what happened. Either way, what? Max puts together his master plan where he says if he can't, er- like, I guess he could just erase the cage that she's in, but, you know, Max decides he's going all out and he is going to erase Oblivion. He says yeah. this out loud. Kronos realizes this and react- reacts a lot more calmly than you would expect. No, did I erase Oblivion? Did I erase Oblivion? Max scrawls the word Oblivion on a piece of paper. Kronos, like a fucking moron, rather than just running through the door and murdering the monks, he charges back at Max to try and stop him. Uh, but before he can destroy him, uh, Max finishes erasing the word. Oblivion is erased, save for our two young protagonists, Sardo and the dog. Yeah, Shelly asks how this happened, and Max cleverly points out that he erased everything but them. So right before he erased, he wrote all of their names on the paper. Which means, I guess, by putting them to paper, he's committing them to existence. And by not erasing them, he is not erasing them from existence. The rules are kind of fast and loose here, but now they are all basically in purgatory. They're just in, like, an empty white space with bright light. I like this scene a lot. I mean, it looks like they're in, like, a gap ad or something, but it's still pretty cool. Yeah, I liked it. Uh, He draws a door that leads back to his bedroom. He draws the door that we saw in the opening scene and they all go through it, back into his room. Uh, Shelly comments on how this is a mess. Sardo hears their mom downstairs and says, Oh, moms hate me, which is sort of a weird comment. But we need what to does talk that about mean? The... Yeah, exactly. But we need to talk about the most important part of this resolution. Do you know what it is, Dykus? What is it? It's the, pic... it's the poster on his other wall. The poster that oh. every day stares at a cat wearing a monocle. <laughs> what is that? I didn't even see. It is a picture of Jesus with his arms outstretched and behind him are billowing clouds and one of the clouds has an evil face and in the bottom right corner there is a man looking up at Jesus waving at him. What? I'm not fucking making this up. You are making that up. I'm not making it up. And I think Jesus has two birds on his left hand. I, I'm going to have to go back and, and review the tape here. I, ha- I feel like I would have remembered that. It's like 22 minutes into the episode, like 22 and a half minutes in. It is definitely a picture of Jesus with arms outstretched and an evil monster. It's, it looks like the face from House, you know, the, the Japanese movie? Yeah. Yeah, 
it's that face in a cloud behind Jesus while a dude looks up at Jesus and Jesus has two birds on his arm. What in the fuck? I told you I was going to talk about art from this episode. I'm going to screen cap it right now. Oh my god. Yeah, send it to me right now. I have to see this. Okay. Actually, yeah. I will I will literally folks bear with us for a moment as I <laughs> send Dykes the greatest piece of art in this show's history. All right, I'm about to receive the picture. Oh my god. <laughs> what did Literally. I lie? Did I lie? <laughs> This is exactly what Eli promised. It's over Sardo's shoulder. It looks like a scene out of Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> yeah, it does. This <laughs> face in the clouds is so scary. I was right, right? It's the it's the monster from House or House. Yeah, it totally is. <laughs> what the fuck is going on here? Did one of the kids draw this? I have to assume that this is like someone who works on the show made it as a joke or received it as a joke. All I know is I, I desperately want to hear the tale of Jesus versus the cloud. Max and Sardo and Shelly all head downstairs. They run into the mom who wants to know where the piano is. Shelly says that it was out of tune or messed up, so the piano teacher left, and they sent the piano to the repair shop. Sardo pretends he's from the repair shop, and he ducks out the door. Max hugs the dog, and it's implied that I guess it's his dog now. And we cut back to the Midnight Society, yeah. where everyone totally accepts this and tells Tucker, great job. And Tucker reveals to the Midnight Society that, I guess, as he's been telling the story, he has drawn a charcoal portrait of everyone sitting around the fire. And he threatens to destroy this illustration unless they help him clean up all the crap that he brought with him. Uh, which they do. Of course. Yeah. I liked this bit of continuity. This, this You mentioned that you, this might be a callback to the last episode where no one paid him back and no one helped him and they all abandoned him. And so maybe this is him, you know, getting back at them for that. I, if, if this was a deliberate callback, then I really appreciated it. Yeah, same here. Uh, they all help him clean up, and we cut to the funky-ass theme song. The funky-ass theme song. So that is the tale of Oblivion. Now, Eli, I know this is uh, not traditional, but I'm going to go ahead and ask you the question. Uh, are you scared me. of this? Not at all. What about you? I was also not scared of this, but that is not a demerit against this episode. Uh, I really, really enjoyed the tale of Oblivion. I would say it's the most fun episode we've had this season. Really? I think so. More fun than Jake the Snake? (laughs) Um, yeah, I think so. Jake the Snake was good bad, and this episode might have just been good. Like, there were parts that were genuinely funny, just for, you know, out of humor, rather than out of failure. Yeah, I thought everything about this episode was pretty good. I thought the acting was fine. I thought the story was okay. Uh, But mostly I just thought that it had a really good energy to it, and it was very funny. It's not trying to be scary. Uh, All of the suspense in it is functional at best. It's not like... It doesn't fall flat, but it also, I don't think, ever hits a level of being scary or tonally off. It just feels like a good kids' adventure episode. Uh, I, I like the acting here as well. I'm going to give special recognition to uh, Ma- the character of Max and the kid playing him. He is nominally the butthead of this episode, but he never he's never so he's never such a butthead that like he becomes totally unlikable. He's not like a sociopath. He's I think just... it's helpful that he's a butthead in the beginning so that we can set up this idea of a conflict. And then that is very quickly abandoned. 
Like, after he erases his sister, he totally changes his tune. So we start off with a butthead who leaves a bad taste in our mouth, and then we end with a kid that we like. It's not totally believable that he transitioned from one to the other, but it doesn't bother me. Yeah, he has, like, a good arc. Uh, And it's always nice to see these, like, sibling rivalry episodes. The last one I think we had was the Forever Game? And the butthead in that one was totally unlikable, where you wanted him to lose. And this this is probably a better one. I like when we have siblings who are dealing with this sort of rivalry and and come out, both of them, likable in the end. Uh, but like you said, this had a, a lot of energy to it. All of the jokes, I think, landed. There was nothing really cringy in here. Uh, good, fun episode, even if it didn't make a whole lot of sense. And I think this continues a really strong... We've had a really strong run of episodes in Season 6. I think there have only been a few true, like, clunkers this season. Everything has either been good, bad, like Jake the Snake, or... At least kind of fun, and this episode was a, a, a real high point. Before we end, uh, the girl that plays Shelly in this, her name is Emma Taylor Isherwood, I think. Um, she looked familiar, and so I looked her up. She is not actually from anything I recognize outside of Are You Afraid of the Dark, although the uh, the kid that played Max, that's his name, right? I'm not crazy, Max. Yeah. Yeah, the kid who played Max has been in a few things. Uh, he was in Degrassi, he was in the movie Juno. But uh, this Emma Taylor Isherwood is not from anything else that I would know. However, she's in a lot of stuff. And I want to play a game with you really quickly, Dykus, based on the uh, the things that she has appeared in, if you don't mind. All right. I'm going to give you three show titles, presumably from Canada. And you have to guess which one of them I have made up and which two are real. All right? I'm excited to play this game. Hit me. All right. Was Emma in a show called... Revenge of the Land, (laughs) Ultimate G's, Zack's Flying Dream, or Galador, Defenders of the Outer Dimension. I'm going to guess Revenge of the Land. I'm sorry, Dykus, you're wrong. Those are all things she's been in. Oh, fuck you. (laughs) All of those crazy-ass titles are real. (laughs) What a career. (laughs) Uh, We can play one more if you want. All right, sure. Was she in a show or movie or whatever called The Mysteries of Alfred Hedgehog, The Secret World of Benjamin Bear, or A Dad for Christmas? Um, I mean, I'm hoping it's uh, Alfred Hedgehog, which is like, which I assume is Sonic the Hedgehog's less cool brother. <laughs> You're in luck, Doug, because that show is real, just like all three of them. Everything this woman has ever been in has a batshit title, aside from Are You Afraid of the Dark? <laughs> Crazy to think that The Tale of Oblivion was the most rationally named thing she's been in. Yeah, closely followed by Cuckoo Harajuku. Gazootai. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so anyway, that, that closes the book on the tale of Oblivion, and let's get to what we're doing next week. Next week, we're going to review the tale of Vampire Town, which is going to be a Quinn story. It's It's been a while since our last vampire episode, which is, of course, the tale of uh, the Night Shift, which was awesome. So we're going to see if it can live up to that. I want to point out I'm excited about this episode because uh, they list on the Wikipedia that the actor Kyle Downs is in it. 
Um, the only reason Kyle Downs is a character that I know about, or an actor I know about at all, is because my wife did a short-lived show where she reviewed Lizzie McGuire, and Kyle Downs played the character of Larry Tudgman on Lizzie McGuire. So I'm I'm amused that I will be seeing him again. Should we make this a crossover episode? <laughs> I might have to at least get Lindsay and Cheyenne to comment on uh, Larry Tudgman's appearance. And we may we may actually have a few more surprises in store for viewers next week. Uh, yeah, we'll see so, if that comes to fruition. Yeah, stick around, tune tune back in for that. And in the meantime, as always, you can find us on social media. We are on, we are on Twitter at you scared of this. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash you scared of this. You can find our entire back catalog on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash you scared of this. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. I think is what it's called. Uh, don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating, a review, tell people about us. We always appreciate it. Always. So we'll see you guys next week for the tale of Vampire Town. On my birthday! Since... Oh shit! And since uh, Tucker did not hereby declare that episode of the Midnight Society closed, I'm not going to declare this episode closed. Well, I'll laugh. There's nowhere in the rulebook that says we have to declare it closed. We'll just end on a protracted pause. Yeah, that's and we, hang on, hang on, hang on. Paco! Paco! Stop! Go! You lay down or you get out. I'm not gonna eat my sock. Okay, Dykes, I'm going to start going um, 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 and walking forward. <laughs> My goal is to make that same joke every week now. Paco, <laughs> Paco, lay down. Now, Homer, don't you eat this sock. I looked up, I looked up the other day, I've been watching a bunch of Simpson clips on, uh, on YouTube, and someone actually compiled every example of Homer having a lifelong dream. He's never had before. <laughs> Your lifelong dream was to eat the world's biggest hoagie. <laughs> and then it like it, it shows that clip. Then it cuts to a clip from like three seasons later, and Homer says like, "Oh, this is my lifelong dream." And, and Marge is like, "Your lifelong dream was to run out on the field during a baseball game, and you did it last year. Remember?" <laughs> it cuts to a framed like a newspaper, like front page of a newspaper that says, "Idiot ruins baseball game." It's just Homer in his underwear being tackled by security on a baseball field. I didn't know that that was a running gag on that show. I'm going to have to watch that. Taco, stop!